Okay, hi everybody. Today I'm speaking with Angie Hobbs, who's a professor of the public understanding of philosophy at the University of Sheffield in England. She is also the author of multiple books, including Plato's Republic, a Ladybird expert book, and she's on the advisory board for Plato's Academy Center in Athens, among many other honors. Um, so I'm really happy to talk to you today, Angie, about Plato. Um, and I, I think my first question is just around a little bit about, you know, can you tell us a little bit about your background and what drew you to studying this specific topic? Oh, thank you. Well, thank you so much for inviting me. It's a real pleasure and an honor to be here. Yes, well, I first got interested in philosophy at school, but it was when I, I got to university and I first started reading Plato that I really fell in love because I was very torn at that stage, about 20, between philosophy and literature. Mm. And I loved both and I didn't know which to choose. But then I discovered Plato and found I didn't have to choose because he's a, a brilliant writer as well as a brilliant philosopher. So I loved that. And I loved the fact that, you know, as we're going to be discussing, he writes in a dialogue form. He never writes in his own voice. So there's this debate, this dialogue, this fictional dialogue. But we, the, the future readers, we can enter the conversation. So there's space for us to enter the debate. And I really loved that, that he doesn't tell us exactly what to think or what he thinks. And of course, he learned from, from Socrates, his friend and mentor, who never wrote anything down, but only did philosophy, mainly outdoors in Athens, you know, tramping around, talking to people in the marketplace and in gymnasia and so on. So I just fell in love with that dialogic uh, oral debate, you know, that approach to philosophy. Wow. Well, okay. So let's talk a little bit about that specific aspect of things. Was he, was Plato the first person to, to really embrace that style of writing with the dialogues? Because it really is quite, it makes it easier to read. And, um, you know, uh, was he the first person to, to do that kind of thing? Well, well, there were other kind of pupils or followers of Socrates who were also mm -hmm. inspired by his oral, you know, technique of dialectic of question and answer. For instance, Xenophon, but um, who was a retired military commander, and he wrote dialogues, Socratic dialogues as well. But they're not as brilliant as Plato. Xenophon just didn't have the philosophical understanding of what Socrates was about. So really, yes, I would say it was Plato. Um, of course, in the pre-Socratic philosophers, i.e. the philosophers who came before Socrates, uh, there were lots of different experiments with style. So you get Heraclitus writing in paradoxes, like you can't step into the same river twice. Mm. Uh, and Zeno, Zeno, you know, the, the moving arrow is motionless. The runner can't cross the stadium. Uh, you've got Parmenides who wrote an epic hexameters, you know, so you've got a lot of experimentation with style because it's such a new discipline. You know, philosophy is only just being invented. And so they're working out how to do it. But I, I find Plato's dialogue form really appealing. Do you, what do you think of in terms of the historical accuracy of the dialogues and these conversations? Because sometimes people present them in a way that this is exactly how a conversation actually played out in real life. But when you're reading it, it's a little hard to imagine 
that someone could go on such a long monologue <laughs> or whatever it may be. So what is your impression of the kind of the historical accuracy of, of his dialogues? Are these real conversations or are they impressions of conversations? What are your thoughts on that? Okay. That's such a good question. I know that's a big yeah. question. So, so the, I would say two things. I mean, the Socrates in Plato's dialogues, the character Socrates in Plato's dialogues, and he's usually the main interlocutor. In a few of the late ones, there are other main interlocutors, but it's usually Socrates. He's a fictional construct. Mm. So what's Plato's always right. He's writing fictional dramatic dialogues. So we, we're never getting exactly the historic Socrates. Plato's not trying to do that. Now, that doesn't mean there's no connection between the Socrates in Plato's dialogues and the historic Socrates. Um, and what we think is that in these sort of early, early middle dialogues of Plato, what the character of Socrates is saying is pretty close, at least to the ideas and theories of the historic Socrates, who we know was really only interested in ethics, questions of how to live and what sort of person to be, what's the good life. Um, and we know that we know some of the historic Socrates' theories about uh, the unity of virtue and the only thing that really matters is your soul and you're the only person who can harm your soul by doing wrong. Nobody else can harm your soul, etc. So we know some of his theories and we get those in the early dialogues of Plato. However, when we get into the sort of middle and late period Plato, he Plato moves into metaphysics, uh, you know, the study of reality, the, the study of the theory of knowledge, into political theory, into aesthetics, into logic. And we, we know that the historic Socrates did not go there. So we're, we're moving more and more away from the historic Socrates into the mature Plato's own views, but he's always inspired by Socrates. Mm. The basic question, Socrates, the historic Socrates' basic question, how should we live? What sort of person should we be? That's always Plato's starting point. Okay. Interesting. Well, can we place Plato just historically sort of, can you tell us a little bit about kind of when he lived and what things were like and where, where he lived and uh, what what that society was? Yeah, so Plato's born probably 428, 427 BCE in Athens. Some people think two or three years later, but I think about 427, 428. He dies in 347 BCE. Uh, so he, he gets to 80. He's born into an aristocratic Athenian family. Uh, he has connections with both the the oligarchic faction in Athens and the democratic faction. So he comes from a politically divided family in a time of real conflict in Athens. So in his early years, Athens is at war with Sparta in the great Peloponnesian War, very bitter civil war. Um, and then throughout all of that, there's also these internal um, political struggles in Athens between the oligarchic and the democratic faction. And uh, it's it's really interesting. So when Athens loses to Sparta in 404 uh, and the oligarchic faction briefly take control, they chuck out the democracy briefly and basically Sparta sets up a sort of puppet oligarchic regime, including two members of Plato's family, 
And that oligarchic regime, which we know as the 30 tyrants, they behaved really badly. And they invited Plato to join them. And he would have been expected as a young aristocrat to go into politics. And he doesn't. It's really interesting. He doesn't. Uh, he he waits to see how they're going to behave. And they he doesn't like the way they behave. And then the democracy comes back. The oligarchic faction is outed. That democracy comes back. Plato's initially hopeful it will behave better. And it does a bit. But then it puts... Socrates to death. And his beloved mentor, Socrates, with whom he's been associated since probably his mid-late, you know, late teens. Uh, so Plato is just thinking, you know, what? So he's in his late 20s. Um, Athens in a complete political mess. His beloved Socrates put to death by the state and things a bit dangerous for him as a philosopher, as an associate of Socrates. So he leaves Athens for about 12 years. Wow. Um, he takes refuge, first of all, in Megara um, on the Greek mainland. Um, but then he travels hugely all around the Greek world. He almost certainly goes to Egypt and to Cyrene in modern Libya. And we know that in uh, 387, he goes to southern Italy uh, to study with the Pythagorean philosophers and mathematicians there. There were, there were these Pythagorean communities, followers of Pythagoras, who, who is dead by now, but and they set up kind of communes. Sort of, they were the sort of the hippies of the ancient world. They set up these vegetarian communes, but they also studied mathematics and music very seriously. And Plato loved mathematics, thought it was the answer to everything, and he goes to study with them. And then he he heads to Sicily. Um, with to he stays with the tyrant of Syracuse, Dionysius the first, only just escapes with his life. There he was apparently sold into slavery on his return journey to Athens at the orders of Dionysius. Um, Plato had called out his tyranny and critiqued it, wasn't too popular. Mm. And he gets back, finally, he gets back to Athens and he sets up his academy outside the city walls of Athens, a kind of higher education, research and teaching institute. And he he then finally decides, he's, um, he's now really about 40, and he finally decides not to go into politics directly, but to devote the rest of his life to philosophy. Though he does go back to Sicily a couple of times to try to create a philosopher king there, which is, doesn't work out. So oh, he has wow. quite an eventful life. Yeah. He keeps saying he just wants a quiet life, <laughs> he just wants to teach and write quietly. But he's born in turbulent times and he has a pretty dramatic life. Wow. I really, I really did not know any of that about Plato's life. You don't hear a lot of biographical information about Plato. I feel like the focus always goes towards Socrates and yeah. people don't necessarily realize that that's a lot of what we know about Socrates is coming from Plato, um, so, like you said. So I'm curious also about just the volume of work that Plato produced, because I have a book that I didn't buy. I, I don't know where I got it, but I have a very old, complete works of Plato book that I've been looking back at here and there. Uh -huh. And the book is falling apart. I don't I have no <laughs> idea where it came from, but it's, but anyways, it's quite extensive. And so, oh, you know, yes. 
I, I just wonder what your thoughts are on the volume of what he produced and, and, and sort of is, was that, where does he stand among some of the other ancient Greek philosophers and writers just in terms of what has, what he produced and what we have access to today? Well, no, in terms of volume and quality, I mean, there's, there's the only person who would rival him for volume and quality would be Aristotle. Mm who of course was Plato's pupil who came to study with Plato from he Aristotle comes from northern Greece uh he comes to study with Plato when he's 17 and and he stays until Plato's death he's there for years and becomes then a research associate and, and colleague uh so yeah no and Plato's extraordinary and as as we've discussed he touches on just all the big questions you know what really exists how do we know that it exists how do we know that we know what's the good life for an individual how can we best live together in communities what's the relationship between uh moral virtue and pleasure what's the relationship between moral virtue and beauty all these huge questions so i mean his range is absolutely vast he's phenomenal and really only aristotle can match him for volume and range well and is it so is it fair to say that plato isn't necessarily drawing a lot a lot of hard and fast conclusions of this is what I think about some of these different subjects. Like, how do you interpret, is he just sort of setting up these debates and letting different characters fight it out and then the reader can decide who they agree with? Or is he, is he, or, or can you sense what his conclusions are or, his, or is he persuading the reader to think something about morality or government or something like that? Okay, I think somewhere between the two. So, I mean, for instance, he's one of his most beautiful dialogues. I would urge all your listeners to read his symposium on erotic love. I mean, we're recording this just before Valentine's Day, so it's the oh, perfect, yes, perfect dialogue to, to read. <laughs> remember um, that. <laughs> and all these different characters, there's Socrates, the philosopher, but also a tragic playwright, a comic playwright, a soldier come statesman, a lawyer, a, a doctor. They all give their different views and definitions of what erotic love, eros in the Greek, is. Um, we don't know for sure whether Plato wants us to agree with one view over the others or whether he wants us to combine the two. We do know he wants us to reflect on all these different views. Now, the, the longest speech is given to the character of Socrates. And I think that usually Plato, the author, the offstage author, puts into Socrates's mouth the views that he currently finds most attractive, that he thinks are most likely to be true. But that doesn't mean to say he agrees with them uncritically or wants us to agree with them uncritically. He's always interrogating them and getting other characters in the dialogue, often very intelligent, educated people, to interrogate them and critique them. So even if he thinks, well, actually, I, I you know, I rather, you know, he's giving his theory of that this sensible world isn't truly real and reality resides in this other realm of perfect eternal forms of beauty and justice and goodness, which we can't really touch or anything. So though at a period of his life, he finds that view very attractive. He, It's never the case that he says, this is absolutely it. This is what you've got to believe. 
that's it. That this is me, you know, never. He's always saying, question it. And he gets other characters to question it, and he questions it. And in and in later dialogues, he sometimes revises or gets rid of his old ideas. So, like all great thinkers, he's always questioning himself. He's never just spouting dogma. So I think, yeah. So somewhere between the two of your possibilities, was was he a, a character in these dialogues, or was he always an un? seen character who is observing the dialogue of others. Yeah, he's he never appears as a character in the mm. dialogues. And in the whole corpus, he only mentions himself, Plato, by name twice. Once is in the Apology, which is his account of the trial of Socrates, for, supposedly for impiety and corrupting the young, almost certainly a political trumped-up case. Uh, just a show trial, really. Um, and we learn that Plato was what present at the trial of Socrates, and he was one of the people who offered to help pay a large fine in, in lieu of the death penalty. So he was one of Socrates' friends there at the trial saying, you don't have to put him to death, we'll pay a big fine on his behalf. The other occasion is in the Phaedo, which is the very powerful and moving account of the final day of Socrates' life in the prison cell when he's about to be given the hemlock. And many of his friends are there and indeed discussing whether the soul is immortal, whether there's a life after death and so on. Uh, he's Socrates is doing philosophy literally up to his last breath. And we are told there that Plato was not present on that final day. And there's a very moving sentence. The character just says, Plato wasn't there. Plato, I think, was ill. And I think that that, I think, is a Plato telling us, giving us a clue that it wasn't that he was really ill. You know, it, it. he just couldn't bear it. He couldn't bear to see his beloved Socrates given the hemlock and put to death. Wow. So those are the only two occasions he mentions himself. Was he, do we have a sense of how he was viewed uh, in his own time? Was it clear that he was, at, you know, was it clear that he was among the most influential thinkers and writers of his time? Or did that take, you know, did that not happen until later? No, amongst the intellectual Greek world, he became famous very quickly. And mm. people came to study from him, with him from all around the Greek world, which, as, as you know, was all around the Mediterranean basin or, you know, around a lot of it. It was very, you know, along the coast of Asia Minor, up to the Black Sea, along the, co you know, the coasts of North Africa. There were Greek ports, um, even if they weren't officially Greek, they were a lot of Greeks traded there. And then in Sicily and southern Italy, no, you know, southern Italy was known as Magna Graecia, sort of a, a, a lot of Greek colonies. And from those uh, communities, a lot of uh, keen young intellectuals came to study with him and live at the academy. Um, and we know that his famous works were copied very quickly within his lifetime. So the Republic, for instance, perhaps his most famous work, uh, went into a lot of copies very quickly and became known around the Greek world in his lifetime. We know that within a hundred years, 
it's in the library in Alexandria in Egypt. So to have got there, people must have been copying it quite, quite fast. Now that, but like lots of intellectuals, is he having an influence on society at large? To some extent, he is a bit because in the academy, he's not just training philosophers, he's very much training future political advisors and leaders. Uh, he wants, he, one of his most famous sayings in the Republic is that there is going to be no end to the miseries of humanity until either kings become philosophers or philosophers become kings. Hmm. Uh, later in the Republic, he makes it clear that there are to be philosopher queens as well as philosopher kings. So hurrah for, hurrah for Plato. Uh, but so he's always trying to train up the next generation of political leaders and advisors and voters as well uh, and give them a philosophical training. So, And he was asked by several city-states around the Greek world to go and help sort of set up a new political constitution for them. He he turns those offers down. So he was pretty well known. Mm. Um, as ever, you can ask how many of the great majority of the people knew about him. Well, the majority probably couldn't read and write anyway, but that that's true for most intellectuals at this period. Well, and and like you mentioned, one of his students was Aristotle, who went on to do a, a a lot of work and tutor Alexander the Great and others and yes. so there's this oh absolutely you know Abs this absolutely yeah um I mean I have a theory that Plato might have been one of the first in Athens to learn about the threat from Macedonia and the uh, then it was before Alexander the Great's time it was his father uh, Philip the Second um, because. Aristotle comes to study and live with Plato in, I think, 367 uh, BCE. And on the whole, the Athenians don't really become alive to the threat from the north, from to the threat from Macedonia until the 350s, 340s, when Demosthenes starts his great Philipp Philippics, his great speeches against uh, Philip of Macedon. But Plato, in fact, it's clear from the Atlantis uh, myth, which I think we're going to be looking at a bit. Yeah. Plato's not a fan of empires. He thinks empires are very dangerous, both for those who rule them and for the ruled. He thinks empire building is a, is a very dangerous thing to do. And he might well have heard about the ambitions of the Macedonians from Aristotle, who comes down from northern Greece, from Stagara in northern Greece. But Aristotle's father was the doctor at the court of the kings of Macedon. Aristotle's father was a great friend of Amyntas III, who was the father of Philip II, who was the father of Alexander the Great. So Aristotle might well have told Plato, watch out, you know, the Greeks still think, Athenians still think the main threats are Sparta and Persia. And that's what they're really worried about still. But actually, the main threat is from the north. So watch out. That's, that's just a theory I have. I, have. I, I can't prove it. It's just No, a we love that. We've talked a lot about Alexander the Great. He kind of was the first historical figure that drew me into looking into ancient Greece because I'd always been curious about him since I was a little kid. And so I always like going back and 
uh, hearing more things about uh, Macedon and Alexander yeah. and Philip and all that. I actually visited the Royal tombs just this past summer. Uh, oh, oh, I, I'm very envious. I've not yet seen them. I'm so want to go and, it, it was, and see ancient Macedonia it was because such cool. an interesting character. I mean, yes, a very ruthless, bloodthirsty ruler, but also a very intelligent and thoughtful man in some yeah. ways. And and of course, his tutor had been Aristotle. So, right. and he used to take academics and artists with him on his expeditions. They weren't just military conquests. They were also, ex they were exploring the natural world, the anthro, you know, the anthropological customs and so on. Really fascinating. It's funny, and I know this is a little bit of a sidebar, but the more I read about Alexander and things like that over the years, I have less of a sense now of of Alexander and what he must have been like or who he was and whether he was a good or bad influence, different things like that than, than ever. So, um, you know, it's just hard to, it's hard to really understand, uh, uh, you know, it, it's more complex than a lot of the just popular characterizations of Alexander. Um, but apparently, I mean, I'm, I'm a redhead and apparently you can still see a sort of trail of redheaded villages and communities all the way through um, Afghanistan and into, you know, Pakistan and so on, where his uh, often redheaded Macedonian warriors went. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Um, the genes live on. The genes live on. And it's, uh, it's interesting. Speaking of that, uh, Achilles also had red hair according to the Iliad. Um and well it, I mean well it was sort of yellowy goldy colour. Hmm. I mean sort of gold, a sort of burnished gold with you know there would be an, a, a hint of orange coppery tinge to it, but yes. Okay. Well let's let's get on to the most controversial perhaps the most controversial subject of related to plato and that is atlantis i first mm -hmm. came across you listening to the bbc podcast in our time the panel uh, about the story of atlantis and found that your perspective was was really fascinating so i wanted to reach out and can we just talk a little bit i just did a short episode of a 101 about atlantis and stuff like that um can you talk a little bit about Plato and why he may have written this story about Atlantis and kind of what it was all about. Yes, yeah, so he's writing the, the Atlantis story appears early on in his dialogue, the Timaeus, and then throughout the entirety of the Critias. But we only have a few short sections of the Critias. It, it then breaks off. And he's writing those dialogues, we think, in the 360s BCE, but they're set dramatically in the final, the final third, the final twenty years or so uh, of the previous century. N why he brings in the Atlantis story is, is really fascinating. So at the beginning of the Timaeus, Socrates reminds us, us, the the listeners, the readers, that the previous day he says that they've been outlining various features of the ideally just state. And the features that Socrates mentions pretty much match books two to five of Plato's Republic. They haven't discussed the whole of the Republic the previous day, but they've been discussing certain features of it, like the community of wives and children and, and so on. 
And Socrates says that he would love to see this ideally just state in action. He wants to see it tested in action, particularly he wants to see it tested in war, to see if the virtues he's ascribed to it really stand up to the test. And one of his friends, one of the other interlocutors called Critias says, well, you know, the funny thing is, he says, and and Plato's tone is probably quite ironic at this point. Critias isn't being ironic, but Plato, the author, probably is. We'll come back to that. So Critias says, the funny thing is that as we were going home last night after our discussion, it occurred to me that our ideally just state that we've been imagining matches in almost every detail a kind of prehistoric version of Athens 9,000 years ago, which I heard about when I was a very little boy from my grandfather when he was an old man. My grandfather told me about this great war between prehistoric Athens and this great wealthy uh, island kingdom of Atlantis. Atlantis, according to his grandfather, was an island situated in the ocean just beyond the pillars of Heracles, which in the ancient Greek world are the Straits of Gibraltar. So we're sort of at the the very where the Mediterranean meets the Atlantic. And it was this maritime kingdom uh, and, in fact, governor of a pretty big empire. And it did okay so long as its rulers valued virtue more than wealth and power. But then their lust for empire building got the better of them and they tried to expand their empire into the Eastern Mediterranean. And they tackled Athens. They wanted to conquer Athens. But Athens saw them off. Despite being much smaller, much poorer, its virtues of courage and discipline and innate heroism helped it to see off the mighty Atlantean empire. So good, you think, great, virtue defeats human vice. But then it turns out, in a, in a real twist to the tale, that though virtue helps us defeat vicious humans, nothing helps us in the face of nature and the gods. Because at a later time, both plucky little Athens and Atlantis, the whole empire of Atlantis, were destroyed in one single terrible day and night by earthquakes and tsunami. Uh, Athens disappearing into the ground and Atlantis disappearing beneath the sea. And this is all 9,000 years ago. So that's where we are in the Timaeus, that we've got this war 9,000 years ago. And how did how did uh, Critias's grandfather get to hear of it? Well, he'd got to hear of it from his father, who was a friend of the great Athenian lawgiver Solon. Solon sort of living... Uh, born about oh six thirty something. I mean, until he's a, he, end of the seventh, early sixth century BCE. And Solon had been travelling in Egypt in the Nile Delta in a place called Sais, and he'd been talking to some Egyptian priests there. And Solon had been telling them about the Greek myth of Deucalion and Pyrrha, in which there's a big flood which destroys. The civilization. 
And one of the Egyptian priests says to him, and again, Plato being very mischievous and ironic here, the Egyptian priest says, oh, Solon, Solon, you Greeks are always children. There's no such thing as an old Greek, meaning, you know, you're so gullible, you'll believe anything. Don't you even know, the Egyptian priest went on, that there were many natural catastrophes before the flood in the Deucalion and Pyramid, and then he tells him about the Atlantis story. So that's where we are on the Timaeus. And the Critias, uh, we are told much more about this magnificent uh, maritime kingdom of Atlantis. So it's fabulously wealthy. It's beautiful, it's luxurious, it's very fertile, it's full of fruit and flowers. The people in it live this wonderful, luxurious way of life with very uh, sophisticated technology. They have hot and cold plumbing. Um, They have a racetrack, gymnasia, beautiful gardens. It's, you know, it's all lovely for them. Um, And they're ruled by kings who are the descendants of the initial rulers of Atlantis, who were implausibly five sets of male twins, who were the offspring of the sea god Poseidon and a human woman, Clato. So you've already got this clearly fictional origin of the story. And they're living this gorgeous, gorgeous life. And and I said, everything is fine until their lust for power and wealth overcomes them. So that's the account. So what we need to remember is that in Plato's story, Atlantis is the bad guy. Atlantis is the set up to be the enemy of noble, plucky, courageous, dutiful, disciplined, prehistoric Athens. And what's so fascinating to me is that throughout history, people have recreated Atlantis in their own sort of wishes to People have recreated Atlantis to sort of fit in with their own wishes and dreams. And very often it's forgotten that it's the bad guy and it's just portrayed as this magical sort of island kingdom. Wow. Well, I'm curious what your thoughts are on seeing this story that's part of Plato's philosophical dialogues become such a sticking point with uh popular culture and the hist- and the idea that Atlantis was a historical location and a historical civilization what is your impression when you you know I don't know about everyone else but my YouTube algorithm and whatever and my friends that listen to podcasts I'm always hearing about the latest theory about Atlantis from the Joe Rogan podcast or something <laughs> yeah. else where someone has finally found the the place that Atlantis must be. And these things have, there are millions of people that are hearing about these Mm. ideas and I'm torn on it because I think it can be an entryway into people learning more about ancient Greece and Plato and things like that. It has been for me. However, I also think a lot of people hear it and sort of just take it at face value and assume that all of archaeology is corrupt and whatever. So what is your impression as a, you know, as an expert on Plato and, uh, and, and some of these topics, like, what is your impression when you see so much debate and, uh, stuff out there in the popular culture about the, the search for the historical Atlantis? 
Well, I'll come back to the evidence in a minute, but the immediate thought is that Plato would be amused and delighted to know that it was still being discussed, that people were still debating about whether it had a historical basis or not, and if if it does, where is it, and so on. Because as we'll come on to, I think he's deliberately created a multi-layered story, which is deliberately difficult to interpret, because he wants us to engage in active textual interpretation. He wants us to do active philosophizing for ourselves and to keep the debate going. So I think, and as I said, we'll come on to the evidence for and against in a minute. I think he's quite deliberately sowed seeds in the text that it's fictional, seeds in the text that it might have a bit of truth in it, deliberately to keep people guessing. Mm. Now, we know we don't have any mention historically of Atlantis before Plato's dialogues, the Timaeus and the Critias, in the 360s. That doesn't mean that there was no historical seed for it whatsoever. We'll come back to that in a bit. But there's no mention of Atlantis before Plato. Uh, In the ancient world, there is no one author who absolutely, definitely thought it was true. However, there are several, Crantor, Posidonia, Strabo, who thought it might well have been true, might even probably have been true. There were others, Plato's own student Aristotle, uh, Plutarch, who thought it was, or seemed to have thought it was definitely false. Now, Aristotle, as we know, was taught by Plato, lived with Plato for many years in the academy. Uh, Crantor was came shortly, was a follower shortly afterwards, and also ahead of the academy. So if very shortly after Plato's death, his own followers don't agree about whether he's making it up or not, uh, then I think that suggests that Plato didn't want people to agree. And that's why he's sowed all these conflicting clues. So on the side of it being fictional, there are clearly fictional bits in the story, such as the, as the fact that the original kings of Atlantis were the offspring of the sea god Poseidon and the human Plato. There are mentions of a mysterious metal called Orichalc. Uh, there's various fictional elements in the story. There are also lots of places where we seem to have quite heavy irony with with. Critias saying, oh, it's just amazing, you know, prehistoric Athens matched uh, our ideal state in every way. And the fact that this war took place 9,000 years ago, but the Egyptian priests say their written records only go back 8,000 years. We've got a, a deliberate missing thousand years. Plato's kind of burying the evidence. So there's quite a lot of that going on. But then there are other things. Uh, The timeline of Solon uh, through Critias's grandfather through to Critias, that could work. Solon was very respected in Greek culture. He was part of Plato's ancestral family. Uh, Plato has quite a lot of respect for Egypt and is always interested in Egypt, though Again, mischievously, at various points in the dialogues, I regret to say that he says you can't always trust um, Egyptians to be telling the truth. 
Now, I obviously don't endorse that view of the Egyptian character, but it's interesting for this interpreting this legend because Plato puts a legend into the mouth of Egyptians and and then elsewhere in his work, he says, well, you can't always trust Egyptians uh, to be telling you the truth about things. And But then he has other things, you know, Socrates says, oh, well, the great thing about your story of Atlantis Critias is that it's not a mythos, it's not a myth, but it's an Alethinos Logos, a true account. So you've got all this mixture going on. So as I say, I think, and Plato goes into such detail in his description of Atlantis. I mean, the the measurements, they're so precise, the amazing sort of account of the, it's, um, the central citadel is on an island surrounded by concentric circles of land and canals, which are crossed by bridges with towers made of ornate patterns of black and white and red stone. And in the middle of the citadel is a temple to Poseidon, and in the temple bulls roam, and there are dolphins on the walls, and it's beautifully detailed. Now, so what do I think? I think Plato's basically made up a story because he wants it to serve certain ethical and political and religious uh, purposes. He wants it to illustrate his view that virtue defeats vice, but that both human virtue and human vice are fragile in the face of nature and the gods. And he wants it to convey an anti-imperialistic message. Uh, we can come back to that. Um, he's almost certainly linking Atlantis to the Persian Empire, which had tried to defeat uh, the Greeks in 490 and then in 480 and 479. So there's lots and lots of political messages going on. However, that doesn't mean that Plato couldn't be working with memories of some folktale that he'd heard. And I personally think that he was, because I think there are some very telling similarities between the description of Atlantis and what we know of the Minoan culture on Thera and Crete. Plato didn't know about the Minoans. He didn't know about the eruption on Thera, um, which was was that uh, about 1610? Was that about 1610 BCE? He didn't know about that. Uh, But that he could well have heard just sort of folk stories going through the generations about this very sophisticated, rich, lavish society, which was then swallowed up by earthquake and, you know, tsunami. So he that could have passed down. I mean, it was a massive eruption on Thera. It we know that it was felt in Egypt in, indeed. So I think that there are some folk memories of the Minoan civilization. Um, a couple of things, we, no, I think three things we could pick out. We can pick out the fact that both the Minoan culture and Atlantis, um, in both cultures, bulls figure prominently. In both Atlantis and uh, Thera and Knossos, uh, you get these buildings built of intricate patterns of black and red and white stones. You can see those buildings in the wall paintings at Knossos. But also I've travelled 
um, around Santorini, modern theatre. Um, and you by the side of the road, you can see piles of stones, black and, and white and red. And also dolphins that figure largely in the art of both cultures, which isn't surprising. They're both wealthy maritime uh, kingdoms. So not all my academic colleagues would agree with, with me. I mean, every academic who specializes in Plato thinks that basically Plato's making this up for his own ethical, political, religious purposes. But some, including me, think there are some historical bases for it. And I still think that the Minoan culture and theory and Crete is a front runner there. The fact that he's locating it somewhere quite different on in the other end of the Mediterranean, that wouldn't signify. I mean, he, as I said, he didn't know about the Minoans. He didn't know yeah. where that was. That wouldn't stop the, the folk story uh, coming down. I think it's been overlaid with stories of the very wealthy civilization, uh, you know, uh, amongst the kings in Mycenae. Um, I'm sure he's wants us to link Atlantis with the very wealthy, mighty Persian Empire, which tries to defeat plucky little Athens in 490, but then is defeated at Marathon in 490 and at Salamis in 480 Platea in 479. So I and I think he also then wants us to think that after the Persians were defeated by the combined Greek forces, you've then got this period when Athens starts to develop an empire of its own in the 5th century BCE. And it it sets up, it becomes this head of the uh, Delian League, which is allegedly there to protect Greece against future Persian invasions. But really, Athens uses that position to build up an empire and Sparta gets increasingly jealous and Thucydides in his history of the Peloponnesian War says that it was basically that jealousy and fear of Athens that provoked that civil uh, conflict. So you've got all of that going on, Plato kind of saying the Persian Empire wasn't good, the Athenian Empire that followed it was a big mistake. He's also, I think, worried that in the 360s when he's writing this, the Athenians look as if they want to be setting up an empire again. Um, again, uh, allegedly to protect people against Sparta and Persia. But So I think there is that big anti-imperialistic model. But I, I think there are some historical roots to it. In that it definitely strikes me as logical that he's telling a quite intricate story and, you know, it's not just pulled out of thin air. I mean, people, you have to be inspired by something you have to be, you know, so the idea that now to what elements came from where and what, you know, how to weigh the different inspirations, it, you know, is, uh, is a debate, but I am, it seems to me, quite plausible that he would have heard elements of, you know, some of these destroyed civilizations in mm. the past or something like that, that had been passed down and was just running with it. <laughs> and I think so. I think so. I mean, he he has the imagination to make it all up from scratch. We have utopian fantasies in mm. the Republic and the laws. We have very elaborate myths in dialogues like the Gorgias and the uh, the Fido, the Phaedrus. So he he's got the imagination to do it. But like 
all great writers, he's able to take all this material and weave it into what he was, you know, something new. And and also there were there was earthquakes and tsunamis and destroyed towns in his own lifetime. I think in three seven three BCE, uh, the town of Helike in the northern Peloponnese was just wiped out overnight by earthquake and tsunami. Um, I mean, tragically relevant given what we're, you know, the awful situation we're seeing right now in, in Turkey and Syria, just oh, right. desperate, just desperate. But yeah. it, it is a part of, you know, that whole part of the world is very prone to, you know, as we know all too painfully at the moment, these, you know, huge eruptions and earthquakes. So, yes, I mean, so so that's where Plato is. Um, and as I said, in terms of academic response, basically he's making it up. Is there a little bit of history mixed in? I would say there was. What gets really interesting, but also really dangerous, though, is when you look at the afterlife of the myth of Atlantis beyond the ancient world, where it was mainly thought to be mostly made up. But there was debate. It was. It, we know it was a kind of a, a a question in exam, not quite in exams, but the scholar, you know, young scholars were asked to write essays on, you know, Atlantis fact or fiction. It was a big topic. And for about 2000 years, the, the legend has quite an innocent history. People just enjoyed the tale. I mean, if you, I hope all your listeners will go and read it. I mean, it is, it's beautiful. It's fascinating. It's magical. It's absolutely worth reading. And they enjoyed it. And then when the um, what Europeans call the New World was discovered by Europeans, it obviously wasn't discovered by the people already living there. But, it, you know, at the end of the 15th century common era, then people started making connections between Atlantis and the Americas. And you've got Thomas More writing his Utopia. Uh, where he makes use of Plato's Republican laws, but there's also little elements of the Atlantis legend in there. You've got Francis Bacon writing the new Atlantis when he situates it in the Pacific Ocean, actually, beyond Peru. So you've got people starting to think, you know, maybe there are some connections with the new world here, but it's still fairly innocent. But then it gets really dark in the 19th century, um, because in the middle of the 19th century, various scholars of Mesoamerica, or they call themselves scholars, they're not very good or rigorous or fact-based fact, fact scholars, they started to claim that the amazing civilizations, such as the um, the Maya, the Maya civilization couldn't have been created by Mesoamericans because they were too beautiful and technologically sophisticated. They must have been created by Europeans. And they specifically think that maybe Atlanteans, European Atlanteans, Atlantis is now very much sort of embodying Europe, somehow made it over. They have mad theories of, you know, continental drift, uh, now completely discredited, of course. And so it's a very racist theory. And that gets taken up again in 1882. An American uh, congressman, I think, an amateur historian called Ignatius Donnelly writes, um, Atlantis, the antediluvian world, again, it says it's all, he says that all ancient 
civilizations stem from Atlantis. All of them, every everyone, all around the world. So again, hugely not just racist, but basically white supremacist. And uh, Madame Blavatsky, a few years later, writes The Secret Doctrine, in which she says that the Atlanteans then give rise evolutionary. She has this mad, poisonous theory of sort of evolutionary racism, in which the Atlanteans then give rise to the Aryans. Then that's taken up at the beginning of the 20th century by various German and Austrian scholars who... Uh, then they start to locate Atlantis in the far north of Europe, in a realm they called uh, Hyperborea, uh, again after Greek mythology, and claim that this Nordic Atlantean race again sort of gives rise to the Aryans, um, and they specifically then start to distinguish it from the Semitic peoples, and it gets really, really dark. And so Plato's myth is now being hijacked by racist uh, imperialism. And in the 1930s, this racist interpretation of Atlantis gets taken up by the SS uh, leader Himmler and by Rosenberg, who's the chief Nazi ideologist, and it's made official Nazi ideology. For me, this is another reason why it's so important to keep going back to the original texts and to not lose sight of studies of the ancient world because people who then try to hijack ancient history, ancient mythology, ancient philosophy and hijack it for their own poisonous purposes, they need to be called out. But you can't do that if you don't know what you're talking about. So, um, you know, sadly, the myth of Atlantis has this dark history to it as well what, what do you think about the current um the current kind of debate i mean it doesn't it doesn't seem to have that same darkness to it that was present in the 20th century but there are you know there there are questions about it and i guess the motivations of some of the people involved and whatnot but there's also just this Indiana Jones type oh, yeah, yes. kind yeah. of, you know, thing that I think is far more prevalent where, you know, uh, you have people that want to go out and discover Atlantis and they, and they want to have a YouTube channel where they <laughs> show people the evidence and all these kinds of things. What are, you, what are your thoughts on kind of where we currently stand and do you hear about this stuff much or is it oh, like yes. out of sight out of mind oh okay. oh oh absolutely oh my goodness i do because i must have made about four tv programs on atlantis plato's okay. atlantis legend now and i always know when one of them's been aired in one country or another because people were writing to me from all over the world saying you know you're all wrong i've found atlantis um yes i i get a lot of this um, yes, yeah, so it's it's been quote discovered in inverted commas. Oh, South Atlantic, North Atlantic, uh, Tibet. Himmler was keen on it being in Tibet. Um, all sorts of islands like Madeira and the Canary Islands. That's a bit more realistic. Uh, the Black Sea. Um, oh, all over, all over in the Americas. If I were cynical, you might say <laughs> I might say wherever somebody you know, with perhaps more money than 
and uh, work commitments wants to spend the summer vacation and scuba diving. <laughs> um, what fascinates me, is, I mean, what I never know is how much these people know about the origin of the story. Do they know that there was no reference to it before Plato? Have they read Plato's account? If they have, do they think do they take Plato at face value and think he was simply recounting a genuine story? Do they just do they not see all the ironical pointers that Plato? I mean, at one point, Critias says, you know, we can't speak directly. We're always speaking in images and representations. You know, all our language is metaphorical. There are all these clues, and and and, and the Egyptian priest says at one point. Of, of another myth that you know there is this is the story this is the myth but it relates a, a cosmological process and a historical event so so there are all these clues that we're meant to be interpreting it i don't do they really believe it or do they just want to believe it and if they just want to believe it why i mean that's what's so fascinating and what does atlantis speak to us it's this beautiful vanished world. So it, it appeals to our sense of pleasure and wish fulfillment, but also maybe it speaks to our fear because it's a beautiful world which was then wiped out by nature and the gods. So I think it speaks to very deep things in our psyche about what we yearn for, this lovely, luxurious life of leisure and and charm and it's all delightful, but also the fear that nature might wipe it out at any moment. Uh, so I think it speaks to something very deep in us, but also how would we feel if Atlantis ever were discovered? I mean, as you will have gathered, I don't think it ever can be because I don't think in this right. form it ever existed. But supposing it did, supposing I'm wrong and it were to be discovered, would people be happy or sad? Because it seems to me that maybe we need it to remain a myth. We need it to remain a kind of Shangri-La that's always just out of reach. And do you, what do you think? Right. Do you think? Do you think? What do you think? I think so. And I think that what I see from a lot of, you know, the people who seem to be diving so deeply into finding Atlantis, but from a place where they've done so much research it appears to me now i don't i think they're going off in a direction that there isn't a basis for but they really could go on for hours and hours and they do <laughs> about <laughs> you know the tectonic plates and the eruptions and the you know all these different possibilities and it just strikes me that they these are highly imaginative people their their yes. imagination is running away with them and i think that atlantis that story is kind of fitting i mean it is a very imaginative world that Plato has created. I just think it captures the imagination of people and they just are they it's it's motivated reasoning. It's like when you want when you deeply want to believe something, you can convince your you know, you can uh do a really deep dive and make all these logical connections, but it's it's all you're always choosing the path that leads you to find what you Oh you know, yeah, I mean the, the the you know one theory is that 
Atlantis resides at the bottom of the Bermuda Triangle, and that's why, and it's somehow some kind of magnetic force field that draws boats and airplanes down to. I mean, there are all sorts of theories out there. And I, um, yeah, and I really am fascinated by some of the characters that arrive that have these elaborate theories and whatnot. But I do, the question that I come back to as well is. Some people have made you can make money from this kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, yes. you can make a name for yourself and in some cases it might be easier if you have a certain charisma and, and imagination, it might be easier to to go that route than to get a PhD and submit the, you know, the research and whatever that is required to do that. It's a more glamorous route to yeah. say, you know what, I'm gonna. <laughs> you know, go out there and I'm going to become no. And and obviously some of these uh, people have become quite popular and well-known. And, you know, um, I, I would imagine that Graham Hancock is more well-known than almost any archaeologist in the world at this point or any historian or something. So it's um th- there. I think that I think that at a certain point, it also becomes a career type decision as well for people yes, yeah. in a business decision. Yeah, no, I, I think you're absolutely right. But also, again, that economic path, that would if it ever were to be discovered, if I'm wrong and it ever were to be discovered, and it turned out to be, you know, a little bit of a disappointment. I mean, that economic path is closed off. That that, you know, that right. is dry. You you've wrung you've wrung it dry. So there is more in terms of career advancement and economic possibility and publishing theories, again, maybe it's economically better if it always is slightly out of reach. But the good news is it always will be slightly out of reach because it doesn't actually exist, or at least not exactly as Plato describes it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I wanted <laughs> I, I, I wanted to ask you a couple more questions. I didn't want to end the conversation without asking you about another one of your books called Plato and the Hero. I just know I I haven't read any of it and I but I just noticed it on your website and read some of the description and it looked fascinating and very relevant to some of the things we've talked about on the podcast. And so um just switching topics for a moment, can you just tell us a little bit about kind of what that book is about and uh and kind of why uh, kind of why you took that that um route? Yeah, so Plato grew up absolutely loving Homer. And even though Homer is eventually escorted out of the ideal state in the Republic, very reluctantly, because most art is going to be banned. But anyway, Plato, as a boy, loved Homer. And he grew up with all those great heroes of Achilles and Agamemnon and Odysseus and so on, and was just fascinated by them. But he, as he matures, he starts to worry about some of their ethics because, yes, they have Achilles is very courageous and skillful and honest and prefers noble death to ignoble hanging around in life. But Achilles is also extraordinarily bloodthirsty and insubordinate and irreligious and attacks gods as well as humans and so on. So he, was, he has worries about Achilles. The same with Odysseus. Odysseus has many fine qualities, but he's also deceitful. Uh, you know, while Odysseus, Odysseus, as he's known, is also lying Odysseus, and Plato's very unhappy about that. So he starts to interrogate 
his culture's heroes. But he also thinks that at least in our childhood and early adulthood, we need heroes to inspire us and to model ourselves on and to speak to parts of our psyche which rational philosophical arguments can't always get to. Because Plato's all about educating the whole psyche, not just our reasoning bit, but also what he calls our spirited element, the what he calls our thumos. That's the bit in us which cares about victory and success and reputation and wants to make our ma- mark on the world and just the bit that the Greek heroes in, in Homo care about. So he wants the notion of the hero to continue, but he's a bit unhappy about the heroes he's inherited. And then he gets to know Socrates and he thinks, well, I can turn Socrates. I mean, Socrates was a a hero to most people, uh, or at least most people in Plato's circle, that he did choose to die rather than disobey the laws of the state or to run away. And he did choose to lay down his life for philosophy. Um, So Plato thinks, well, maybe I can turn Socrates into a new kind of hero who combines the best of both Achilles and Odysseus, but shows you can be a hero, you can be a, quote, a real man, uh, and we'll come on to women in a minute, but you can be a, quote, real man without having to pick up a sword or go onto a battlefield. So he's trying to extend the field of heroism, the field of courage. When we get to the word courage, the, the Greek for it is Andrea, which literally means the qualities or behavior appropriate to a man, to a male. But it's also the word for courage in general. So when women are, show courage in ancient Greek literature, they also have to show Andrea, they have to show manliness. So Plato then also starts to interrogate Greek virtues in general, and he and is it really true that some virtues are male and some are female? And his answer is is no, that that you know you you want to be a good human, and women can show the same virtues as a good man, and what that's what matters. So he starts on this interrogation of the heroes in Homer, and and elsewhere, not just Homer, but then he tries to create Socrates as a new kind of role model for young people who need role models, who need that inspiration. And in doing so, he then realizes he needs to overhaul the whole Greek value system, which when he was, the one he was born into kind of said there are male virtues and female virtues. And Plato's like, no, no, no. (laughs) We just want to have be a good human. And of course, in the Republic, he says there can be philosopher queens as well as kings and that women should join the army as well as men. And I mean, he's over 2000 years ahead of his time in the Republic. It's it's extraordinary. So he gets into a lot. So, and then he's, starts to think, well, what is courage really? What is really what? And so there's lots on what's the relationship between courage and duty or courage and risk. So from his initial question, should we try to emulate the Homeric heroes, he gets into some really interesting areas. Wow. Well, we'll definitely put a link to that book on the website. I'm really curious to read it. Um, And it's amazing how relevant a lot of this is to today. I mean, we're going through periods where we're questioning 
our heroes, you know, in the American yes. history and who's, you know, handed to young people as a hero. And so that that's always being questioned. Um, as well as the gender and sex differences and all these things, it's uh, yes. Oh no, these are absolutely. like universal. <laughs> they are, and what we what we need to remember is we're not the first generation to be having these kinds of conversations. Right. Previous generations throughout history have asked exactly the same kinds of of question that we're asking now, and that's why it's so important not to lose sight of it all. And it's so, funny. I kind of think about now. I'm thinking about that quote about there's there's no such thing as an old Greek or whatever Solon said. And just, I know, I know in the modern day the, the having less of a sense of history sometimes and America is a younger country and different things. I just, um, you know, it's an interesting thought. Uh, so, okay. I have one last question. Um, I have this book, like I said, it's a thousand pages or whatever it is, the complete works of Plato and I've the only part I've really sat down and read through are these parts related to Atlantis because I wanted to do some research and understand what it was all about. Where do you recommend that if someone is listening to this has taken an interest in Plato or myself, where do you recommend that we start when it comes to Plato? What would what dialogue would you say? Maybe check this out first. Okay, for fun, I would read. The symposium, though it's profound as well, on erotic love, to find out how we can understand the current world a bit better. I would read the Gorgias, particularly the final section with Callicles, and I would read book nine of the Republic on how democracies get subverted to tyrannies. And then to be moved, I would read the Apology, uh, Plato's defense of the life of Socrates at Socrates's trial, and maybe the death scene in the Phaedo. Wow. I will take your advice on that. And I will, uh, I've, my interest has definitely been peaked in Plato. I've never, I was always more interested in the warriors and the heroes and the, but now I'm, I, I can't believe I've left so much of this out of what I've been reading. So, um, where can listeners find more of your work and find more about you? Yeah, I have a an, an website, angiehobbs.com, A-N-G-I-E-H-O-B-B-S.com. And that's kept pretty up to date with links to TV, radio, podcasts, books, articles, and so on. So there's plenty there. I'm also, um, if it keeps going, I'm still currently on Twitter. Um, I didn't update myself to Professor there. I couldn't, I thought that sounded a bit pompous. So on Twitter, I'm at Dr. Angie Hobbs. So okay. when, I got well, when I got promoted, I thought it looks too pompous to change my Twitter handle. <laughs> I don't think so. But anyway, but no, but I, yeah, think, my, my I think website. you should change it. I think yeah, you should no. just go for it. <laughs> I know. Um, but okay. Well, um, but yeah, angiehobbs.com is the best place. Angiehobbs.com. Well, thank you so much for talking to us. Uh, I think listeners and myself have learned quite a bit. And uh, it's just always a pleasure getting to speak to the world's top experts on these subjects. I mean, it's, it's amazing. So thanks a lot. And I'll be in touch in the future. Thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure and best of luck with this really wonderful initiative. I think I've checked out your podcast. It's fantastic. Thank you. Thank you.